So if you've got Romans 8 there, hang on to it. This is week nine of a 10-week series, and I've really enjoyed just going through this chapter together. Um, The first time I came to speak, I had four verses, and I thought, oh my goodness, how am I going to fill 30 minutes from four verses? By the end of my preparation, how was I going to cut down what I had found in those four verses to 30 minutes? Well, this week I have six verses, so I'm just warning you in advance. There's just so much to discover in this one chapter, and I said last time it's the, the sparkle on the diamond um, that Romans is, and chapter 8 is a wonderful, wonderful chapter there. I believe it's import, an important chapter for us as God's people in this church, in this place, that it's challenging us to move on in the plans and purposes that God has for us here today, actually living a life that is led by the Spirit, not just giving mental assent to it or hoping for it, but taking a risk and stepping out and living the way we're challenged to live in chapter 8. So there's two sessions left. And Paul is starting to bring this chapter to a close. And the notes in my Bible call it a joyous conclusion to the argument that Paul has carefully unfolded in this chapter. And it is. It's a joyous conclusion. Last week, we heard from Dave that the Holy Spirit makes an audacious claim that in God, all things work together for good for those who love him. Here, Paul takes that thought and carries it on in um, a series of questions. So today I have six questions to test you on. See if we are taking in what Paul is saying through this chapter. It's like a quick test halfway through a class so the teacher can assess whether what he's teaching us um, is settling in, is sinking in, and that we are learning what we are supposed to. Anyone here like exams? Some people do. Elizabeth loves them. From the age of about three, she couldn't resist a good exam. Dave, I see, enjoys an exam. I just have to say, when my last child finished A-levels, I was so relieved that I would never have to prep for another exam. Matthew Henry says that Paul, in this section, is talking like an orator, someone who would give public speeches, um, particularly in ancient Rome or Greece. They would use a specific format of questioning, um, leading the listeners with them to the conclusion that they want them to draw. And here we can see Paul is doing exactly that. He's asking questions and giving answers, but he's leading us to the truth that he wants to embed in us by the end of this section. He lays question upon question until it crescendos to the ending, which we will come to next week the amazing truth that is held in that section, neither depth nor height can separate us 
from the love of God. And that is such a joyous conclusion. Matthew Henry also says he speaks in this section as one amazed and swallowed up with the contemplation and admiration of his God. I think we get that sense when we read these questions. In these questions, he is throwing down the gauntlet to us. Are we willing to accept the challenge? So if I can have my first slide, Dwayne, question one. What then shall we say to these things? What do we think? Paul is looking for, re- for a reaction to something. It could be a reaction to the previous seven chapters. It could be just a reaction to the previous verses in chapter eight. Or it could just be the previous paragraph. I'm going to look at it as if it's the previous verses in chapter 8, because that's where we've been. That's what we've been focusing on for the last nine weeks. So let's take a second to remind ourselves how it started. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where he started. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We went on, didn't we? If we have our mind set on the spirit, that doesn't mean we live perfect lives, but it means we want the things of the spirit enough to change the way we live. The spirit dwells in us. Paul says, if not, we are not of Christ. But if we are led by the spirit, he goes on to say, then the Spirit will bear witness that we are children of God. We are adopted into his family, joint heirs. And not only that, but we are longing with the whole of creation for redemption. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit in our weakness prays for us. And then we come to last week because, verse 28, we know, deep inside, we know that all things work together for those who are called according to his purposes. That's us. Paul's describing us. Paul is asking, what then shall we say to these things? What do we think? It's a great question to start with this morning. What do you think of what Paul has just led us through? Maybe you feel overwhelmed, grateful, just humbled by what Paul has laid out before us. Maybe you're sat there this morning thinking, I don't know if this includes me. I don't know where I stand in this. Or maybe you're sat there thinking, I'm open to this, but I'm still feeling a bit cautious, waiting for God to do something. Whatever you think, the Holy Spirit is looking for a reaction from us today. Be honest with yourself. How do you answer this? Because your answer will make a huge difference in your life. 
the more we learn about this life led by the Spirit, the more there is to learn. And we are all at whatever stage we are on on this journey. As Dave said, being chiseled and challenged and changed to conform to the image of his son. Now, if you're the one sat there thinking, I'm open, I love God, I'm just a bit cautious about this life led by the Spirit, be careful. This is God. He's inviting us in to this wonderful opportunity. My next slide, Dwayne. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. We don't want to be those people. Being open but cautious, is that obedient to what the Bible tells us to be? When we know that Paul, in the next slide, in 1 Corinthians, verse 14, says, Pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. He tells us to pursue love and eagerly or earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That word desire could also be read, be jealous for the spiritual gifts, hunger for the spiritual gifts, crave the spiritual gifts. Anyone craved anything? I was having a conversation. It's tough if you're trying to give up sugar. Russ stood here after his um, fast at the beginning of the year. It is tough to give up sugar. The cravings set in. Do we crave the Holy Spirit? Are we willing to pursue the gifts of tongues until we see a breakthrough in our lives? Our response, the response that Paul is waiting for here, has to be all in. This life led by the Spirit, he's laid it out so richly for us. What then shall we say to these things? Question number two. If God is for us, who can be against us? God's confirming the um, Paul's confirming the response he's looking for in this question. Do we know this? This can be a tough one. I don't know about you, but this week I could stand here and make a list of people against me. People I've upset, people who don't like what I stand for. When we go out on the displays, they are openly against us. The Bible is full of people who've wondered the same thing. Job, talking to God, why do you hide your face? Jacob, all things are against me. And Jeremiah said, the Lord is like an enemy. I'm sure each one of them today could have a list 
ready in answer to this question from Paul. Did you know um, I googled what are the top three questions most googled about God and I got an answer. The first question most people google about God is who created God? That's an old one. The second one, why does God allow bad things happen to, good, to happen to good people? Well, that's unexpected too. The third one, why does God hate me? A lot of people, even Christians today, feel like God is against them. Paul says in his question, if God is for us, Sometimes we don't know that. We need to know it. We could translate that word if, since God is for us. I don't think Paul says it's, up for, it's a choice. But since God is for us, who can be against us? Or we could say because God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is saying it's a fact that God is for us. He's established it in the previous verses. He's taken time to lay it out. It doesn't mean, as Dave said, that it's easy, but God is actively at work around us and nothing can thwart his plan. Verse 28, um, it says, we know We know that. We need to know it right in our spirit. Paul could have written that phrase again at the beginning of this question. We know that since God is for us, who can be against us? We know also that God knows us inside out, but he is still for us. So since God is for us, the world, the enemies of God may be against us. But I think Paul could have asked today his question like, if God is for us, who cares who's against us? That would be a better way of putting it. Let Satan do his worst Because God has overcome him by the cross. He is defeated. His days are numbered. Remember when I spoke a few weeks ago and we saw that video on creation. The God of creation. The God who flung the stars into space. That God is for us. It's a fact Who can be against us? David knew this well um, in Psalm 23, my next slide. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David had been there, surrounded by his enemies, 
and yet he knew God was for him. No one could be against him. Question number three. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's building again. We've gone from question one to two, and now he's building on question two. If there's still any doubt in your mind, Paul's reminding us of the foundation that we have for believing in God. We know he is for us because he did not spare his own son. I have a son. Most of you out there have sons or daughters. Could you imagine giving one up for anyone else? I couldn't imagine sparing my son. Yet God did not spare his son. Will he not be gracious to us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're still not convinced, Paul is saying, take a moment. Let's remind ourselves of what the Spirit has done in our lives. I have two things right now that I would consider big challenges um, on my prayer list. But when I take time to remind myself of what the Spirit has done in my life, I can pray for those challenges at a whole different level of faith than when I don't take that time to remember what God has done. God saved me. I didn't deserve it. But he spoke almost audibly to me as I was walking down a road. And within half a day, I had turned my life around. It was a real road to Damascus experience. God healed me of cancer. Miraculously, God has provided for me. At times when I had bills I couldn't pay, we just had envelopes come through the door with money in them. And not just enough to pay the bill, but enough left over for something else as well. There were times when I had no clothes and I was upset and just complaining to God. Somebody came with bags of clothes, clothes that I actually liked. And it was such a blessing, but it also put me right in my place. God was showing me he can provide for every need that I have. I ended up sharing those clothes with other people because I had far too many just for my wardrobe. Then I'm convinced that God is for me and will graciously give me all things. All the things that I need in order to be in his plans and the purposes that God has for me. Everything that I need to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul is echoing that. All things from verse 28. All things work together for good and he will give us all things. Those things we are praying for are nothing compared to what God has done through his son whom he did not spare, but 
gave up for us. Psalm 34 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Hear that? Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not only did he create the heavens and the earth, but he sent his son, not sparing him. That's who we are taking refuge in. The same God that has adopted us as sons and heir into his family. The one that we can cry out, Abba, Father, will graciously give us all things. Question number four. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, there's Satan. His name also means the accuser or the slanderer. Scripture tells us that he accuses us day and night before God. So Satan's out there, not only is he accusing us before God, but he tempts us to sin. And then after we sin, he taunts us about it. We've all had that experience, haven't we? He tried it on Jesus, but it didn't work. He stands in heaven accusing us. And I'm sure most of what he says about me is true. It's true I'm a sinner. It's true I've messed up. It's true I'm weak and I am not worthy. But God, who didn't spare his own son, justifies me. Amen. Charles Spurgeon says, There is something very comfortable in the thought that the devil is my adversary. I'd sooner have him as an adversary than a friend. Amen. We are doing something right if we are being accused by Satan. But God has justified us. Revelations. Here it is. Revelations 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Amen. If God justifies us, we don't have to give an answer to the accuser. God is the judge. God is the king. God is the one that we have offended. Yet he wipes away our sin 
when we come through the blood of the Lamb and humble ourselves and repent at the foot of the cross. And he justifies us. Question number five. Who is to condemn? Paul's repeating question four again. We know the answer to this. It's easy. Satan tries to condemn us. We've just answered it. But is it the answer? Or is it me who condemns myself? Do I willingly accuse myself and condemn myself and tell myself I'm no good? I will never be good enough for what God has called me to. So Paul answers again. We have a plea. He didn't spare his own son. It is Christ Jesus who is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God. And then he adds yet another detail, who is interceding for us. Amen. If Satan is accusing us, Jesus is interceding for us on our behalf. If we look again at Revelation, it's because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that we overcome the accuser. Verse 14 in in chapter 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are sons of God. God's our Father, and we can cry out, Abba. We didn't receive a spirit of fear. We didn't receive a spirit that condemns ourselves. But we have a spirit of adoption. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We had Roger testify after his time in hospital what a difference it was when he was fighting for his life to have the church praying for him. We have Jesus interceding for us. Father, forgive them. This is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased, sat at the right-hand side of the father interceding for us. Who then can condemn us? Watch out that it's not you condemning yourself. I've combined the last two questions here. If I can have the next question. Question six, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer Paul's been building to in this series of questions is no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Jeremiah 31 can't get there. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Nothing can separate us from this love because it's everlasting. It goes on. Remember Isaiah Um, In chapter 6, his description of the throne room of God, his vision of the Lord, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This is God. Isaiah saw him in a vision. He's a holy and unapproachable God. But he did not spare his son. And in his love, he approaches us through Christ Jesus. His love is amazing. But Paul says sometimes we allow circumstances to cloud that out. Let's take a a minute to look at the words he uses. Shall tribulation, tribulation means trouble or the pressures of life. What about distress? Shall stress, getting burnt out, worry, unhappiness, mental pain, separate us from the love of Christ? Persecution means hostility and ill treatment. The rest of the words I think we can understand clearly enough. Paul is writing to us. I don't think we have to live in the Middle East to understand the pressures of life, worry, bad mental health, hostility, just the troubles of life. They can overwhelm us. They can make us forget the wonderful truth that Paul has been teaching. Or they can make us cling tighter to that truth. I often wonder how people cope today with the pressures, the mental health, the stress levels that we experience without the love of God, without the Holy Spirit leading them in their lives. God's people can face trials and tribulations, but we will never be separated from the love of God unless we choose to. And if we hang on, we can experience that love at a much deeper level. Remember verse 28, we know that's the truth. In conclusion, we come to a very strange verse. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting Psalm 44. Let's read more around it. He's saying, it says in the psalm, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? 
Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you forget my affliction and oppression? My soul is bowed down to the dust. My belly clings to the ground. Rise up, O Lord. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Paul's using that quote there to say God's people have always experienced tribulation and trials, but they were never separated from God's love. In fact, when we stand in faith in these circumstances, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the men and women in that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. A catalogue of people from the Old Testament that Paul is referring to that proves suffering does not separate us from the love of God, but makes us stronger. Nothing can separate us from the love of God unless we let it. So my final slide, what do you think? What's our answer to Paul's questions? I think if we can grasp the truths that we've been studying, the only response is a deep sense of awe and gratitude to the Holy Spirit for including us in his life, led by him. What an adventure. Amen.